and welcome to the NK News podcast, recorded here in Seoul on Wednesday, the 22nd of July, 2020. And joining me via Skype from Los Angeles is Gian Beck, and from Washington, D.C. is Martin Williams. Gian Beck is a researcher and author. She once worked at Google, where, among other roles, she served as Google Ideas North Korea expert. She's also been a research fellow at the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs at Harvard University, where she wrote her book that I'll talk about later. Check out more about her at her blog, www.gianbeck.com. We'll put the link in the show notes. Martin Williams is a journalist and analyst who has been following North Korean information technology and media for more than 20 years. In 2008, he started the North Korea tech website to catalog and report on the country's slow adoption of modern internet, cellular, and digital communications technology. Check out his blog at northkoreatech.com allOneWord.org. Both Gian and Martin are involved now with Lumen, a non-profit organization committed to sharing information to North Korean people through careful research, innovative technologies, and thoughtful partnerships. And you can find that website at Lumen, L-U-M-E-N, dot global. Welcome on the show, and thanks for joining us, Gian and Martin. Thank you for having us. Hello. All right, let's start with the basics. Is there an information cordon around North Korea? Ever so slightly, yes. It is uh, probably one of the hardest countries in the world to get information into because the government doesn't want the populace consuming uh, not just external information, but any information that doesn't come from the, the government and the party itself. That's, that's one of the things that many groups around the world are, are trying to get through. Okay, so unlike uh, sanctions, it's not something that's policed from outside the North, Korea, uh, North Korea. It's something done completely by the North Korean state. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. You know, no, uh, sanctions don't um, cover the, the transmission of information into the country. Uh, and, uh, you know, North, North Korea, the, the Internet remains um, connected to North Korea. The international telephone network remains connected into North Korea. Sanctions don't touch those at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is uh, purely by uh, the rules and laws and wishes of the North Korean regime that the citizens don't have access to anything from outside the country, anything from outside government control. And uh, just sort of broad strokes, how does the, uh, the cordon work? Uh, so there's a, a few different ways. I mean, it depends on the, the way that information gets in. Um, uh, first of all, I mean, the easiest way for information to get across the border is through broadcasting. And uh, North Korea uh, quite heavily jams South Korean television and uh, South Korean radio broadcasts. Jamming is uh, basically broadcasting noise on the same frequency so that when you tune in, you can't hear anything. Uh, and it's been doing that for many years. Um, the uh, internet and telephone network are not available. Uh, the, the international side is not available to anyone inside the country, any, any local subscribers. Uh, they will only have uh, be able to, to dial um, domestically and access the domestic internet. And then, of course, physical media, um, newspapers, magazines, they don't come into the country and, uh, you know, no chance of satellite dishes either. So it's um, several different approaches depending on the medium. It's been going on for for many decades, and it is reasonably successful, uh, although there are signs of cracks that have been for a few years, and uh, digital is, is just accelerating that. And in addition to the infrastructure-based ways that the government tries to jam and block information from getting in, there are also uh, just various punishments that wholesale criminalizes the consumption of foreign information and content. And we could talk a little bit more about that, but those two go, uh, they certainly go hand in hand. Now, Martin, you just said that uh, foreigners can't uh, telephone inside North Korea. Is that talking about landlines or cellular uh, mobile phones? Uh, so the phone network in North Korea is pretty interesting. And it's, uh, there's a, sort of a couple of levels to it. In fact, three sections of it. Uh, there's the main section which the regular North Koreans have access to, and that allows them to call each other, uh, called domestic telephone numbers. Visitors to North Korea um, and uh, foreign residents have access to a second tier. They actually have international calling ability, but they don't have the ability to call any of these first tier numbers, any domestic numbers. Uh, and one of the reasons is uh, because it impedes information flow. It means that someone that is able to get a call to the outside world and get information in isn't then able to easily pass it on to many people within the country. Uh, the third and final tier is um, there is uh, on the cell phone network an elite tier uh, where um, all of the telephone calls are encrypted. Um, those people do have access to everything because they're, they're right at the very top. Um, but, but for most users, yeah, it's a, 
It's the sort of complete international access, but no domestic access for the resident foreigners um, or for the North Korean citizens. It's domestic access, but absolutely no chance of, of calling overseas. Yeah. Now, I, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you're talking about uh, mobile phones in those three networks, correct? Uh, same, same exists on the fixed line network. And, and that's why if you look at... Um, if you look at some of the places, uh, you know, some of the embassies, for example, or um, maybe some of the hotels, you'll sometimes see two telephone numbers listed. One is for calls from within the country. One is for calls from outside the country because they're mm-hmm. on these uh, different tiers. But we also know if you look, uh, for example, on, on North Korean packaging of a, a North Korean product or um, the inside of a North Korean publication, such as a book or a magazine, or in, indeed in the uh, uh, esteemed trade journal DPRK Trade, uh, there are phone numbers there for uh, North Korean companies. What happens if somebody tries to call one of those numbers from outside North Korea? Uh, it's been a few years since I've tried to call anyone directly in North Korea. Um, when I used to do it, I didn't get very far at all. I believe um, some of the old fax numbers were dialed directly. But usually what happens is uh, you go through to an operator in Pyongyang and uh, you have to ask usually very precisely for the, the person that you want to speak to. Um, very often you don't get through or, or they say that they have no record of the person and, and that's the end of the call. Right. And, and that's effectively another uh, another human level of screening too, isn't it? Having a, a, the phone call go through to an operator rather than the end line. Yes. Yeah. And, and in fact, you know, a, a very similar thing. Um, you mentioned the foreign trade magazine. They also list email addresses. Uh, and, you know, a lot of North Koreans don't have Internet access. But uh, there is some internet access. Um, uh, obviously, uh, the, the top levels of government have it, um, some universities and some companies as well. It's all monitored. If you try to email those email addresses, your email often won't get through either. And uh, from what I've been able to figure out, uh, North Korea maintains a whitelist. So uh, basically, it rejects all email that comes in unless you're on the approved list. And to get on the approved list, you sort of need to deal with them. They need to know who you are. Uh, you, need to be, you need to be approved that way. Um, so that, that again, is, is another way that they restrict this access. So given all this, given the uh, information cordon, uh, the restricted phone networks, whitelists, uh, and the lack of access to Internet, uh, one would be forgiven th- for thinking that North Korea doesn't have much in the way of an IT industry or computer professionals. But this is not the case. Why is that? Uh, because IT has been one of the ways that North Korea has uh, both looked to innovate domestically to improve efficiencies in its own economy, you know, the same as any country. If you bring in uh, digitization, if you bring in electronics, you can make things more efficiently. Uh, But then also in terms of earning foreign currency, you know, one of the things that North Korea is not short of is um, uh, human capital. There are many, uh, many people in North Korea and some of those are being trained in this area. Uh, some of those, uh, you know, are going into the sort of more nefarious side of the, the digital world. Um, uh, the we all know about the, the, the dark web, the hackers, the things like that. But some of them are doing legitimate computer programming, um, usually under the guise of other countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, they won't list themselves directly as North Korea. They'll list themselves as, you know, computer programmers in China or somewhere like that. Uh, but there's, uh, there's a good chance that sometimes if you're on one of these websites where you hire programmers, you will at least have browsed past a North Korean programmer um, if you didn't actually, you know, end up hiring them or talking to them. Uh, uh, and back when you were at Google, um, what uh, were was there an awareness then of uh, of an IT industry in North Korea? Did that come up on the radar? Uh, very anecdotally, and uh, just to be clear, you know, there wasn't a big, there wasn't a team dedicated uh, to information access into North Korea. You know, just you know, to be clear and on the record, um, you know, just my, myself and some other colleagues then and there um, looked into ways to get information into North Korea, and because. This is back in this is about ten, eight to ten years ago, mm-hmm. uh, because it was just there are so many challenges to do that. We're trying to work with various affected communities um, to just increase awareness of how to use information um, safely and, and so forth. Uh, but among the engineers and the folks um, at Google that I spoke with and work with back then on various information access projects, not only into North Korea, but other closed societies, uh, there was a lot of anecdotal information and awareness, um, but wasn't there wasn't any systematic research done um, on the country's IT infrastructure and industry, to my knowledge. I think that that's probably changing. Um, I can't speak for the company at all, but I think just, I mean, inevitably, individuals uh, working at the company, I'm sure, are interested and in, have taken that mm. on on their own. 
Now, when uh, when North Korea does a uh, a hack, performs a hack on external entities, does this happen from within North Korean soil using the internet, or is it done by North Koreans working outside of the territory of the DPRK? Uh, to my knowledge, um, the limited knowledge that I have on this issue, I think it's usually done um, by North Korean people outside of. Uh, outside of North Korea, uh, most most likely in China and some other places where they're working in. But uh, Martin, do you want to do you want to add on to that? Yeah, no, Jian is correct. It's um, a, a lot of North Korean hackers in uh, China and mm-hmm. then sometimes uh, across Southeast Asia, a few other countries. Uh, but usually from um, outside of the country. Uh, I think one of the reasons is that it's uh, just easier to get internet access in China than it mm. is in Pyongyang. Uh, the other thing is that it's, uh, you know, more difficult to trace trace as well. Um, North Korea has a very small range of internet addresses. Mm. Uh, when they pop up, it's very noticeable. But, you know, a, a hacker connecting to a computer from China, um, you know, it's just just sort of becomes background noise, I think. So, um, yes, it's, it's mostly from overseas. Now, a bit of a topical question. Most recently, uh, there was a, a spectacular hack of uh, Twitter in which wealthy celebrities were apparently offering cryptocurrency giveaways, but it was all, all simply a, uh, a means to uh, basically rob people of uh, of cryptocurrency through fraud. Do you suspect that there were any there was any North Korean involvement in that? Is there any sign pointing to that? Uh, I don't think we've seen any sign yet. It's um it's a good question though. In in uh, recent years, North Korea has been looking at cryptocurrencies uh, and sort of using that as a way to to raise money by stealing cryptocurrencies. Mm. Uh, they usually though have gone after cryptocurrency exchanges mm. and uh, uh, things like that. It it hasn't been this sort of thing. Um, so I'd be surprised if it was. It, it also, the Twitter thing, as we know now, created a big splash, but in terms of the money raised, wasn't very successful either. Uh, Jiyun, in 2016, you published a book called North Korea's Hidden Revolution, How the Information Underground is Transforming a Closed Society, uh, which our listeners can order through Amazon.com or directly from Yale Books. Uh, can you tell our readers a little bit about it? Sure. So this is a book uh, that basically tries to describe um, how strict and um, just how restrictive the society is, or the, sorry, the regime is uh, to foreign information. Um, and despite the harsh punishments and the infrastructure uh, set up to prevent information, um, some of which Martin has uh, detailed earlier, uh, people are taking very substantial risks uh, to consume information and to circulate it and just essentially to learn more about the world outside of North Korea. So uh, the book details um, just historically how foreign content has been trickling into North Korea, of, you know, back you know, with VHS tapes and cassette tapes all the way to micro SD chips um, present day. And um, some of the actors who are involved in pushing and pulling information into North Korea, some of the civil society organizations uh, based in South Korea and elsewhere. And also um, at the end of the book, it details some of the ways that um, that readers or just civilians can, uh, what, what civilians can do to get involved, help out. Yeah. So that's sort of the gist of the book. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of the people and organizations that I've interviewed for that book, you know, informally, formally, um, so forth. Many of them, I think the, the listeners to this podcast will be familiar with. And unfortunately, many of them have been, facing various challenges in continuing their work, especially on the ground of getting information into North Korea due to some recent developments. And we can, you know, we can name some of the groups, um, you know, in, in a little bit. But yeah, that's that's what the book is about. And um, all proceeds from the book sales will go to organizations that support information into North Korea, uh, not to Lumen, uh, that, <laughs> so mm-hmm. it's to, but to other groups. And so I hope that the listeners well, bear that in mind. Okay. And uh, Martin, late last year, you published a report for the Committee for Human Rights in North Korea entitled Digital Trenches, North Korea's Information Counteroffensive. And this report can be downloaded at the committee's website. Uh, what's it all about? Uh, so this is uh, sort of taking uh, the, the sort of subject that Jion wrote about, information getting into North Korea, and, and what we're talking about here. And it's looking at the North Korean government's response. So um, a little bit of what we talked about earlier, but but how the North Korea is responding to all of this information coming in. And it's sort of split up into several sections. Uh, one looks at the legal response and how that's evolving. Uh, one looks at the technical response, uh, which is all the sort of 
blocks that they, they have on cell phones and, and, and things like that to stop them being used. Uh, and then also a little on the ideological response as well, because, of course, uh, North Korea um, is continually pushing different messages to its people, and, and that's a part of this as well. Mm. Now, it's easy to see that your work has a lot in common. How did you come to work together? So after I left Google, I went back to Harvard to study, and I really wanted to take you know, this kind of interest in North Korea, information and tech and human rights uh, to it, just to kind of look into it more. I started looking at people who've done work on this and published and, and research on this topic. And you know, eight, 10 years ago, this wasn't a really you know, mainstream issue, if you will. And so then Martin's name kept on popping up, his blog, his name. And so then I had, I was so nervous and I had cold emailed Martin asking for an expert interview. And I think, I think it was a video chat. And, um, you know, and so I thought I'm going to learn from this person. And we kept in touch since then. And I've kept him apprised of just, you know, my ideas and, you know, writing projects and um, asked him all these technical questions that you know, he has been looking into very rigorously. And I think, you know, a couple years ago, you know, we, we tossed around ideas of what's in need in this kind of general field of information access and how could we uh, pull together our interests, our passions, our research, our networks to do something about it. That's that's my recollection of how we started working together. Martin may have a completely different <laughs> uh, memory. Oh, it sounds about right, yeah. <laughs> now, you both believe that it is uh, significant and timely to support information campaigns into North Korea, given recent political events. Could you tell us more about this? Sure. So, in a nutshell, and I'm sure that most listeners will agree that um, there is a dire need for just access to information in North Korea. You know, no one's force feeding anyone to read or listen to anything, but there's a need to make information available to North Koreans uh, and, and people living in repressive societies anywhere. And given just how committed the regime is to blocking information, there's obviously a big need for innovation and creativity and ways to get information in um, content being a very important but also diversifying the distribution methods to get information into the country. I think there's a couple reasons why this is particularly timely now um, to focus on this particular issue. Firstly is with COVID-19. Um, you know, borders have been sealed off in North Korea, elsewhere too, but especially North Korea. So a lot of the information uh, and people moving in and out of North Korea has essentially come to a halt. Um, and so... That kind of underscore the importance of innovation in delivery mechanisms uh, for, for content into North Korea. And secondly, um, this is much more of a political uh, reason. The, the South Korean government has uh, responded very robustly to North Korea's regime's demand to block the South Korea-based activists from sending leaflets in. And th this is not a new phenomenon. I know that this has been a very touchy subject. You know, these activists sending leaflets in from South Korea into North Korea, uh, you know, for many years. But um, back in June, um, the, the North Korean regime uh, made very strong demands and threats uh, to the South Korean government. And the South Korean government um, took various measures to basically do what they have been asked. And so they've been um, investigating, and they say inspecting, but I think, you know, investigating, inspecting over two dozen South Korea based NGOs, half of them, so over a dozen of these NGOs being run by North Korean defectors or North Korean resettlers, uh, many of whom are, many if not all of them, who are involved in information dissemination, not only through leaflets, but many other creative ways, perhaps more covert, more quiet, invisible ways, um, as well as uh, those organizations involved in human rights awareness uh, in North Korea. And mm. so so COVID blocking these distribution routes, as well as political developments, which are further blocking um, these efforts in South Korea, um, I think just underscores how important it is to be innovative um, and using the technology available to uh, the human race in 2020 uh, to try to creatively push, um, or not push, but make information available to North Koreans. Mm. I, I feel like I should point out in the interest of fairness, though, that the South Korean government does also uh, continue to jam uh, North Korean media into South Korea, does it not? 
It does indeed, yes. And and when back when uh, you know a few years ago when North Korea flew leaflets into South Korea, and that's I'm talking about the North Korean state here, not uh, uh, non-existent North Korean civic groups. Uh, the South Korean government, you know, insisted that uh, all these leaflets should be turned into police rather than kept by private civilians. So it is a bit of a it, it's a continuing since 1949 two-way right. uh, blockage of information from one Korea to the other Korea, isn't it? Right. Yes. You know, there's a lot of stories I listened. To, I, I uh, listened to growing up uh, with my relatives and other, you know, people growing up in South Korea in the 60s and 70s and 80s, um, where they would find as little kids they would find these leaflets coming in from the north, and uh, local police officers mm-hmm. would have these little contests and say, you know, the the kid or the student who turns in the highest number of leaflets, you know, gets a little prize, like right. a cute notebook or something like that. And so this has been, you know, a two-way, inform- this information exchange, warfare, you know, campaigns, it's been ongoing between the two Koreas on the peninsula since, you know, before the Korean War, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I think what's um, important to note is that one country is democratic and the other isn't. And so, uh, obviously, I, I, rec- I fully recognize that sending leaflets very in a very visible way, in a very, you know, open way, it's sensitive, and it, it presents uh, various security challenges to people in South Korea, especially those living close to the border, um, which I think makes the argument for turning to innovation and technology all, all the more strong. Yeah, it's, it's a two-way uh, blockage, but of course, it's it's much more heavily, you know, one-sided. Mm. Uh, South Koreans do have ways to get around the block if they want. Um, they can use a VPN to access North Korean websites. North Korea, uh, South Korea routinely jams uh, the North Korean uh, medium wave and, sh- and uh, FM radio stations that are easy to receive. But if you buy a shortwave radio, there's no jamming. So it's um, it, it does ha- go both ways, but it's it's not equal in, in any way between the two countries. So why is unfettered access to information in North Korea something that seems to upset the North Korean government very much? And I can, you know, a couple of examples. When the BBC started broadcasting in the Korean language uh, or whenever groups send leaflets into North Korea, as we've just mentioned, or even the injunction against bringing in CD-ROMs or USB sticks into North Korea and sharing them with locals uh, or the mobile phone system that Martin just outlined to us, all of these, uh, you know, these methods are in place, but what is it that that troubles the, the North Korean government so much and makes them so angry about this? I think because uh, you know population control um, is one of the one of the most basic and important things that the Workers Party needs to continue, and uh, central to that is information. Uh, it's giving people a consistent message. You know, if you look at the way that you know we talk about North Korean media. Um, but until you sort of look into it a little more deeply, you don't really realize that this is not media like we have media and we have different choices. And you're sure North Korea has different radio stations and TV stations, but they're all from the same place. And not just that, but they are programmed. The, the, the messages they give come from the propaganda and agitation department which also is in charge of writing songs, which also is in charge of theater productions, which also is in charge of posters. Everything comes from this one central place. So anything that potentially disagrees with that is a danger to that message. And that message is the most important thing that they have to keep the people under control. So I I think that's why foreign information is so dangerous to them. Um, and, And that's why, you know, they wouldn't react the way they do. They wouldn't put all of this effort into trying to block it if it wasn't that much of a problem for them. Uh, I think very often we can, uh, and you know, I, I know you've talked about this before with other guests when it when it comes to different subjects. But you know, the reaction of the North Koreans to something sometimes gives away how much they really care about it or how much of a danger it is. We we can read we can read into their response whether it's something that's you know they care about. Exactly. Uh, the, the society as it is, the North Korean regime society as it is, is predicated on uh, this ideology, but also a particular history that the rest of the world does not agree with. Um, it, for one clear example being that the U.S. started the Korean War, um, and you know, which led to the Korean War and the division of the peninsula and so on and so forth. Um, it also is predicated on the semi-godlike ideology of the Kim family, the Kim dynasty for the Pictou bedline, bloodline, and so forth. So anything that could, any foreign content that could potentially undermine the most fundamental ideological 
uh, narrative that this whole regime and system of control and surveillance is built upon will, of course, be seen as um, as a threat to the regime's stability and, and is, I think, um, one of the few Achilles heel um, of, of this regime. Now, if we look at uh, you know the history of North Korea in the last 20, 26 years since Kim Il-sung died in 1994, uh, there's been, you know, lots of predictions that North Korea will collapse and that North Korea uh, will transform and uh, uh, all sorts of things. But actually, we, what we see, I think, is a remarkable political stability there, um, which suggests, and you know, some of my guests have said this, that suggests a, a significant amount of support and buy-in from North Korea's citizens. Uh, given that, is it ethical to want North Koreans to have uh, outside or foreign information when it's governed? clearly doesn't agree. Uh, I think there's a difference between making information available to them and telling them how they should think. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they have information available to them, they're free to make their up, up their own minds. And if they decide that the North Korean system is great, no problem. Um, I, so I, I think that's that's the big difference is, is simply that they have the choice. At the moment, they don't have the choice. Right. And I think that I'm um, just, just adding on to what Martin said. Um, we as individuals, but also and as an organization, you know, we're really, um, we strongly believe that, uh, you know, we, we don't want to manipulate or trick or, you know, force anyone to read or consume any content or make any particular decision. We just want to make that information available, um, so that people could, you know, just learn about the world outside if they so choose to, or just Read about things that's from a di- alternative source, you know, books, entertainment, uh, you know, makeup, health, you know, whatever else. Um, to see, and they can decide what to do um, if they want to do anything or change their behaviors, attitudes um, based on foreign information. We just want to make it available to people. We certainly don't want to to do anything else. And I think that the demand is there, and we know that demand is there for foreign content. The, the domestic demand for foreign content is there, and we know that because time and time again we hear um, stories of people being punished, you know, the the um, public executions that take place from time to time, but more often the, the high fines people pay have to pay, um, or the various other punishments that are doled out for consumers of foreign content, and that just indicates that people are continuing to take the risks to consume foreign information. And so I think that it's, um, I think it's, if anything, it's ethical to try to make this information available to the citizens um, of North Korea for those who want to consume it. Do you have any reason to believe that even availability to information would cause uh, any any will to change? Uh, If I could make a rough analogy, uh, even in our relatively liberal Western societies, there are um, certain closed societies, like, for example, uh, uh, strongly devout religious groups, who even though they live in uh, in a society where there's access to lots of information, uh, they still hold on to their core beliefs. And I think the one thing that uh, that North Korea has in common with uh, strong religious groups is that it values uniformity over confusion. So when uh, you know when there is a, a philosophical question raised, uh, they like to to see one clear answer, one clear direction, rather than well, this is possible or that is possible. I don't know. You make up your own mind. And they they look at the, at confusion as being a, a weakness of uh, of Western societies and uniformity of of belief and uniformity of purpose as being a strength of uh, societies like North Korea. Yeah, I mean, in Western societies, let's just take the United States for example. Or you know the UK um, or other European countries, information bubbles exist. Information silos, um, like-minded people usually kind of stick together. And this, these phenomenon takes place um, in spite of all these people having access to the history of the. I mean, the internet. But that also exists in part because of the choice. And in, in, in North Korea, yes, there may be a tendency for the society in general to value uniformity over confusion. One person may say confusion, the other may say, someone else may say the diversity of opinion. That may be the case, but, but it's not a monolithic society. And I think that um, providing information or at least making it available to individual for individual consumption um, is still something that's, uh, I think, critical uh, to provide. You're mentioning about, uh, uh, you know, for example, different uh, religious societies and things like that, they, they do have other information available to them. And they choose, they choose not to consume it, or they choose what they believe in, they're not told. And that's, that's the big difference, I think. 
In January this year, Elon Musk SpaceX announced its plan to build Starlink, a global communications constellation with up to 42,000 satellites. Could this be something that brings free and unrestricted wireless internet access to North Korea citizens? Is this the kind of thing you're hoping for? Um, Starlink's interesting, as are any satellite-based services. Uh, one of the problems with getting information into North Korea, I mean, there's a f- few different methods that are used now. Uh, you know, the most one that most people will be familiar with is USB sticks. Um, and the big problem with USB sticks is they have to be smuggled across the border. There is a, a big risk and a, a physical risk to someone mm. when they do that. Sending information across the airwaves is uh, something that is difficult to stop. Uh, it's also something that if you're simply receiving the information, it's difficult uh, to be caught. Uh, you know, if you're if you're at home with a small radio uh, and you have the volume on low, uh, then it's it's very difficult for people to to catch you in the act um, unless they sort of storm into your house, which is something that sometimes happens in mm. North Korea. The problem with those radio-based systems is that the signals only get so far inside the country, uh, and something like a satellite-based service is able to cover the entire country. One of the problems, though, with a lot of satellite-based services is they do require. Uh, rather large antenna or satellite dishes. Uh, the I think a picture of the Starlink dish has come out, and it is quite large. Mm. Um, it doesn't look like the kind of thing that would be easy to disguise in North Korea. And even if it was, then there are other considerations, which are not insurmountable. But for example, because of current sanctions, I think probably a lot of US companies would be very hesitant in working in any way if they knew that their equipment was going into North Korea, um, you're then talking about getting waivers from the US government, which, again, is not impossible, mm. but it takes a lot of time. Um, so it's something we've definitely, uh, we're definitely looking at, um, satellite in general. Uh, we've talked to some different people. There are some interesting ideas out there, and I definitely think that it will have a place in the future. Uh, it is not, though, as easy as you know, when they eventually go on sale, buying a bunch of Starlink receivers and smuggling them across the border, and then mm. suddenly everyone has internet. Now, Martin, you've been following North Korean technology for more than 20 years. Uh, are there some examples that you can point to where outside information was effectively brought into North Korea and where it had some kind of large-scale positive impact on the people there? It's difficult to pinpoint any particular piece of information uh, because it, it's sometimes difficult to get information Outside, out from North Korea to, mm. to sort of do that kind of survey. Um, there have been uh, some uh, good surveys done by uh, well, Nick Kretchen, um, who's uh, here in D.C. and did a report for Intermedia a few years ago. Uh, and he interviewed a lot of North Korean escapees and talked to them about uh, their consumption of information, uh, both on DVDs, CDs, USBs, and and over the radio as well. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a lot of people do credit watching foreign movies and uh, listening to foreign radio with uh, giving them the desire to escape the country. So certainly, when we talk to escapees, we we hear how powerful foreign information can be. You know, the the rise of the markets and things like that. Um, some organizations are having success with sending in not political content, mm. but, um, you know, kind of business content that mm. just teaches the basics of running businesses and things like that. Um, so again, you know, when we're talking about information going into North Korea, Lumen's position is that we, we don't have a point of view. We're not um, trying to send in one particular um, uh, voice, one particular message. Uh, we're not advocating one particular thing. We're simply trying to uh, sort of bring innovation to the space. So we would be working with other groups that are sending stuff in. Uh, and it's, so it's not, it's not all political. You know, some of it will be entertainment. Some of it will be educational content. Um, and, and that's the kind of stuff that also is uh, interesting because it is definitely less threatening for the North Korean regime. The sort of educational content than, uh, yeah, something that, that directly attacks them, which is um, something they really, really um, uh, react strongly to. Speaking of innovation, has North Korea actually developed or adapted any specific technologies to achieve this aim of a cordon sanitaire around itself? Yes, it has. It's um, actually in the last few years, it's uh, we've, we've seen it a couple of times. Um, the first is with the smartphones. Uh, all of the smartphones that are on sale in North Korea, um, even though they have North Korean brand names, 
Um, they're all made um, outside of North Korea. They're made in China mm. uh, from contract manufacturers that actually make a, some of the same cell phones on sale in North Korea are on sale in the US and in European countries under different brand names because they've come from the same Chinese contract manufacturer. Ah. The North Koreans took that and uh, they did modifications to the Android operating system mm-hmm. um, that will prevent them from, say, playing any type of file. The only files, the only content they can play is content from the government. Mm. Uh, recently, does the government saw, have its own file um, file formats, like not PDF, but something else? Yeah, so it's like a digital rights management. There's a digital certificate, uh-huh. and uh, before you play a file on the phone, the phone checks to see uh, there's there's only two certificates that are valid on the phones. One is the government certificate, so it has to be signed by the government. The other is the uh, what's called the self-signature, and that's applied to anything the phone produces itself. So if you take a picture on your phone, you can look at it on your phone. Yep. And uh, otherwise, it has to have the government uh, signature on it. But if you take a picture on your phone and send it to somebody else in North Korea, can they see that picture without having a government certificate on it? Well, that's uh, one, of the, one of the things that we're looking at at the moment, because as far as we understood, no. But some escapees have told us it's possible. Hmm. So... Uh, we're not exactly sure how that's working. Definitely, these apps are looking for these certificates um, because we've, we've worked with computer security experts that have gone through the code. And uh, they've even tried to sometimes load their own photos onto phones and the phones won't show them. Hmm. Uh, so maybe something goes on on the network level to approve them. I'm not sure. Yeah, because um, if, if are, that was impossible, that would certainly, uh, that, that would certainly uh, you know, hamper any kind of uh, social media sharing of, uh, of anything, wouldn't it, except for texts? Yes. Yeah, exactly. And, and that, that's, that's uh, so, you know, they've taken the Android operating system, which is completely open. Mm. You don't actually need a, a license from Google for Android. Things like Chrome and Gmail you need the license for, but the basic operating system is available to anyone. Mm. Uh, and they've modified it to suit their needs. We're also seeing this now. The latest thing where we're seeing this is Wi-Fi. For a few years, Wi-Fi was disabled on phones mm. because it was being used to, to share information. Some of the embassies in Pyongyang, well, probably going back now, longer than five years ago, maybe 10 years ago, mm-hmm. um, they, they would sometimes have internet access points so open so people could connect to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, the government went crazy. Um, I think NK News published a, a memo from the government telling the embassies to knock it off. And <laughs> um, Wi-Fi was disabled for a long time. Wi-Fi is just coming back now. But the Wi-Fi that's being used, it seems to be something that is using a SIM card. Now, SIM cards, I've never seen used the Wi-Fi around the world. But if you look at the advertisements for the Wi-Fi system, it talks about using a SIM card. So the North Koreans have done something clever so that the phone probably somehow requires a physical SIM card, which means there's a log of who has access and things like that. Um, so, so there are several examples of them doing this um, because, you know, like I said earlier, this modern technology can help their economy, can help their country. Um, email can make business in North Korea much more efficient. And who doesn't want a more efficient um, economy, a more efficient country. They just don't want people emailing people outside of the country. But there's no reason why email itself should be banned. And, and Wi-Fi is, you know, the same thing. Now you can get internet access uh, when you're outside. Um, it has benefits to the country. Mm. Uh, so the North Koreans are actually, it's you know, they're proven quite clever at taking these technologies and figuring out, okay, how can we allow this but make it safe so that it can't be used against us can i come back to the the mobile phone network there uh, for a second what would happen if i brought an outside so a foreign sim card to north korea and stuck it in a north korean mobile phone or vice versa if i took a north korean sim and stuck that into you know an, a, a phone that i would bought elsewhere uh, so if you took a foreign sim card in um the phone uh, you wouldn't get anywhere because to use a foreign SIM on a local network, you need a roaming agreement. Mm-hmm. And North Korea doesn't have roaming agreements with anybody, as far as we know. Mm. Um, and not even, I don't think, uh, Chinese phones work inside North Korea uh, on, on, you know, on a, a Chinese SIM card. If you put a North Korean SIM into a foreign phone, the SIM would need to be one of the... Uh, I talked about the different tiers. And there are, there are SIMs from Coriolink for foreigners. Mm-hmm. Those will give you international calling and internet access, but no domestic um, if you put a domestic SIM into a foreign phone, uh, I don't know what the situation is at the moment. I don't know what checks they do as to whether that would work or not. I don't think it would work because I think there's some security to sign onto the network. I'll just share a little anecdote that I got from Andre Abrahamian's new book, uh, Being in North Korea. 
he shares uh, about how he brought his um, foreign phone and his North Korean uh, partner uh, put the domestic SIM into the foreign phone uh, just to see if it would work, and of course it didn't. But then five minutes later, he got a phone call from somebody somewhere, and he had to explain himself. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah, I mean, one one of the... Um one of the things we know is there's a lot of network monitoring in North Korea, mm. and uh, they are looking at, uh, on the domestic side of the network for sure, um, they're looking at uh, web sessions, they're looking at text messages, uh, they're, they're looking at a lot of the traffic that goes across there. They have um, systems that can be used to intercept and listen to calls, read messages. Um, you know, it's get, getting back to the sort of North Korean control and the ability of North Koreans themselves to self-censor themselves because they know that people might be listening. Um, and that's probably what keeps them out of trouble a lot of the time. Could you give us a, a quick sketch of um, other monitoring technologies and systems that the North Korean government uses to keep an eye on its people? Is Big Brother watching you if you're a North Korean inside North Korea? Uh, so, so far, we haven't seen much evidence of that. The sort of big data um, type, you know, AI-based surveillance society that we're seeing growing in Western countries and, and actually to, you know, probably most spectacular effect in China mm -hmm. doesn't appear to have reached North Korea yet because it all requires quite significant computing power and North Korea doesn't have that. But I have no doubt that it's coming at some stage because why wouldn't it? Especially because China's adopting, adopting it so aggressively. Um, North Korea has uh, a much bigger um, stake in control of its people, as we've already talked about. Um, a lot of its security and technology systems do come straight across the border. So uh, I think at some stage it will land in North Korea. I think at that stage, the control um, of North Korean society and the ability of North Koreans to get away with things um, is even more restricted. Uh, if this technology gets in and gets as pervasive as it is in China, but with a much bigger security um, apparatus uh, as North Korea has, uh, I, I think the yeah people's lives will be much more restricted than they are now. It's something to be very concerned about for the future. I think it's really important to think about how the regime is uh, trying to you know watch its people and and control its information consumption, um, especially through the lens of how could outsiders think about innovative ways to perhaps circumvent those. So kind of, you know, thinking about those two things uh, in conjunction. In addition to, but just to add on to what Martin said, in addition to the kind of the increasing digitization of the regime surveillance on its people, especially when it comes to information consumption, we also have to remember um, the human-based, like the, the, the human networks-based um, surveillance mechanisms, just kind of the old school, you know, brute force, the, the um, local authorities coming in and doing random checks and so forth. Do North Koreans ever have any privacy? What are some times or places where North Korean people think they can be alone beyond the eyes of their government? Oh, that's a good question. Um, you know, from the people that I've spoken with and the books that I've read and, and so forth, I would say maybe in one's mind, mm. <laughs> um, uh, maybe being in one's home. I know there's a lot of stories and uh you know coverage of how you know people can't even trust one's family and that may be the case for some families it's hard for me to believe that all north korean families cannot trust one another i think that there is most likely some level of trust uh, of course there has to be some level of trust within families and, and privacy among uh, within families in the home now all homes offices classrooms off you know they're all subject to to checks and it, random checks by authorities. Um, so to a certain degree, you can't have full privacy in one's, even in security of one's home. Um, but I would suspect in households and families and the privacy of one's mind, um, that's probably a very unsatisfying answer. <laughs> Martin, did I miss anything? I, don't, I, I no. think that's because uh, uh, we're, we're in the, uh, the home stretch. We've only got about 15 minutes left. So I'm going to have to ask you to be a little bit brief and cut in from time to time. Sorry about that because uh, I've yep. still got a, a bunch more questions to go through. Uh, Martin, would you say that everyone in North Korea is subject to the same information restrictions? Or uh, you, you mentioned earlier that there are some uh, elites who have special mobile phones that they can access everything. Do we have any idea of what percentage of people have access to uh, outside information? Uh, when the Coriolink network began, um, I believe, uh, gosh, I don't remember the number, but it was something like 500 or a thousand of these encrypted cell phones were ordered. Mm. Those, those are sort of top level government, by the way, when I say elites, I don't just mean, you know, rich people in Pyongyang, top levels of government have access to that. Um, and you know, the, but they already did anyway. I mean, the, the reference newspaper that is uh, published every day 
has a lot of foreign news in it and that's on this very restricted circulation right so these people a lot of these people already had access to foreign information um it is very restricted though now when chad and the nk news team visited north korea a few years ago uh, chad was introduced to a member of a uh, a team at the foreign ministry i think it was the foreign ministry i could be wrong whose job it was to monitor everything published on nk news uh, that, imagine oh. that as a full-time job. Would, would such an individual be expected to go through some kind of extra ideological education as a kind of vaccination against being influenced by outside info? Yeah, usually, uh, you know, North Koreans do, um, uh, usually it's Saturday morning, right? They do the um, the sort of Saturday morning meeting, the, uh, the ideological uh, mm. uh, meeting on Saturday mornings. People that have access to foreign information usually do that uh, two or three times a week because uh, they are thought to be much more susceptible to right. uh, ideas and information coming in from overseas. Um, a lot of people in the, the arts as well um, and, and the media. Now, let's talk a bit about propaganda that the North Korean government produces to offset or counteract the increasing consumption of foreign information amongst North Koreans domestically. Uh, just what's, what, How does that work? Uh, so I just uh, I just wrote about some of the um, propaganda that um, North Korea is sending to the rest of the world. Mm. But in terms of the, the stuff that they're doing inside the country, it, you can look at it from several places. First is the way that North Korea talks about the world. Uh, because if you watch, um, you know, KCTV news or something or read the newspapers, North Korea does cover world news. But if you the selection of stories um, is nothing but the worst news from around the world. If you only consume North Korean television news, uh, you would think that the world is continually convulsed in uh, labor demonstrations, in marches, in plane crashes, in forest fires, in cyclones. Um, that's the kind of news that, that North Korea covers about the rest of the world. Uh, so that's sort of one way that they try to um, convince the people. But that's that's always been the case, though, hasn't it? I mean, I remember uh, my, one of my favorite North Korean comic books from 1990 is called uh, A Sick and Twisted World. And it's literally a collection of, of, of short vignettes of horrible things that people do to each other in foreign countries, uh, including South Korea. Right, yes. So I guess um, there are lectures against consuming foreign information, um, uh, especially in the, the sort of Saturday morning sessions. Um, sometimes uh, someone from the Ministry of State Security will come and lecture people about the ills of it. Uh, but again, you know, if you want to, if, if you're into K-dramas, then mm. you, you just sort of sit there and you um, nod your head and then you go back and you watch more dramas. Uh, so then it becomes uh, a legal thing mm. and, and it becomes uh, the threat of uh, being arrested uh, and that kind of thing. But the regime is very smart and they've made available uh, for like legal purchase um, some types of foreign films uh, for North Korean citizens. And so they're not legalizing all foreign content by mm. any means. A lot of films from Russia, China, you know, some from India and, and Vietnam, like they're all there's some of these films on these kind of pre-vetted lists are available for sale. Mm. So I think it's in some ways, the regime trying to satiate some of the domestic um, uh, desire or you know desire for foreign content, um, but all the while keeping a lot of the dangerous material, all of that um, th that much more illegal. And so they're trying to, I think, release some of the pressure pr pressure valves domestically. So they're becoming very smart about this. What was the DVD that Kim Yo Jong apparently requested recently? Celebrations of July 4th. July 4th, um, right? Yeah. Oh, I see. So it's not a specific movie. It's just she wanted to see whatever the U.S. did on July 4th. Uh, that, that's as much as I think we could make out from it's that rather request, bizarre news story. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. maybe maybe Chad could send it through his, you know, foreign ministry uh, contact. Um. Yeah, why not? <laughs> yeah, that would be great. <laughs> uh, now, what's the third broadcast network that you uh, mentioned in your report, and how does it work? Yeah, so the third broadcast network is something that I, I think was we're getting the sense it was a lot more important back in the day than it is these days. Uh, but it's the uh, you know third North Korean radio network. The first network is the Central Broadcasting Service. Mm -hmm. The second network is Pyongyang Broadcasting, which is the uh, radio service for Korean speakers outside of uh, North Korea. Mm. And then the third broadcast is uh, not actually over the air. It uh, comes via cable, uh, via wire into the house, into these famous little speakers that, you know, uh, legend has it you can never switch off, but of course you can switch them off. Uh, but it's uh, it's cable-based, so one of the interesting things is because it can't be heard overseas, the North Koreans can be um, a lot more candid mm. on that network. Uh, they can uh, do things like issue specific instructions mm -hmm. 
uh, we, when I was doing the report, I actually uh, managed to interview someone that used to work for one of the offices in the third radio network. So this is this is how I, I got the information. It would be something like, you know, a, a VIP is coming to this section of town today. Please be up early. Make sure it's all clear. Uh, they would also use it to um, guilt people. Uh, so, for example, they would they would announce that one of your neighbors, you know, um, Mr. Mr. Park from down the street was caught last night with, you know, 10 foreign DVDs. Uh, they would actually name and shame the mm. specific person. And uh, wow. this was a way to, you know, get into people's heads about the dangers of doing this and about it happening all, all around them. Um, also, some of the lectures, the propaganda lectures, uh, used to be sent um, across the third network. Um, that's one of the interesting things if you watch North Korean television, right, is that you don't see all of these messages about don't consume foreign media. You don't see right. any, of, any of this. It's, it's all just positive stuff. They save that for the um, lectures. I'm yeah, going to be and, guilty and of uh, a, a bit of false equivalence here or uh, relativizing, but I, I live in a South Korean apartment and we have a speaker on our ceiling that we cannot switch off and that occasionally, uh, you know, at least once a week, there'll be a message about uh, how to uh, correctly separate the recyclables on a rubbish collection day, um, a notice about when the underground car park is being repainted, so please don't use floors one and two, etc., uh, etc. Et so, you know, we, we have a kind of a th third broad Broadcast network in Korea, and in fact, here in the uh, the recording studio where I sit here in a uh, uh, a sole office building, it also has a speaker on the ceiling that we can't turn off, and it's uh, occasionally interrupted podcasts by telling us uh, things, <laughs> news inside the building, perhaps about fumigation or uh, you know uh, anti insect uh, campaigns or something like that. So it's uh, it seems to be something in common in both Koreas. Yeah, and I, I used to live in Japan, and um, you know, all across Japan, in in towns and cities. There are these networks of speakers controlled from City Hall, mm. and uh, they would play a tune at the end of the day. But then also, um, if there was information like, you know, the, the river is going to flood or this mm -hmm. old person is missing, these speakers would come to life in the middle of the day and announce it across the entire city. Um, so it's... Uh, it's perhaps a regional thing as well. Does the cable network for the third broadcast network, does it extend through all of North Korea or is it uh, a city by city thing or is it just in Pyongyang? Uh, no, no, it's, it's, it's all across, well, all across North Korea in reach, although not necessarily into every house. Um, there are regional um, broadcasting stations. Uh, so the, the program that you hear in one city will be specifically for that city. Um, although I, sh I should say that you know, a lot of the escapees I spoke to said that these days, because of the constant power cuts, um, it's often not on. Mm -hmm. uh, and also, even when it is on, the, the volume is very weak as well. So it, it seems to be suffering um, as it gets older, and it doesn't seem to be as important as mm -hmm. it once was. So I, I don't want to overstress the sort of importance of the third broadcast, uh, but it, it's still there. Um, as far as we know, and, and it still exists. Do we outside North Korea have a full understanding of and access to all the various modes and media of propaganda put out by the North Korean government? No, no, I, I don't think. I mean, the, the probably the, the most difficult stuff to get, well, the, the stuff on the third broadcast, but the, the lectures, mm. um, you know, that is, uh, I spoke to, again, someone who was a lecturer, mm -hmm. uh, and he said one of the differences was that, you know, in the, in the past, stuff used to come down from Pyongyang on paper, and as things got more modern, it would it would come in, you know, electronically and email. But it's that getting access to that kind of stuff. Um, I, I don't think that there are a few a few pages have come out. Daily NK has published a couple of times a few of the you know reproductions of the talking points. But we don't see a lot of that stuff. Oh, speak of the devil. I don't know if you can hear it, but uh, our third broadcast network has just piped up. <laughs> what did I you say? What, I can't actually. What public service announcement are they sharing? <laughs> I can't hear uh, exactly make out exactly what he's saying, but it is a a man reading out a statement. It does sound very official. Uh, Professor Brian Myers at Dongso University talks about there being different tracks of North Korean propaganda. There's the the inner track, like the third uh, third broadcast network and uh, and uh, weekly lectures. There's the outer track, like the Rodong Shinwon, and then there's the export track, which is uh, propaganda that North Korea produces, which is never intended to be read at home, but only intended to be consumed by outsiders. Uh, that whether they are South Koreans, such as the website Uri Minjokiri, which is for the, the Korean diaspora, or English speakers through Twitter or YouTube. Can you tell us a bit more about uh, export propaganda from North Korea? Yeah, We're, I can. Uh, June, do you want to talk about this? Though? I feel like I've been talking a lot. So I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll start off. So uh, we're seeing a lot more um, creative 
materials that would fit under uh, this export track category, um, English language materials, as well as, you know, materials set up in, a, you know, uh, Russian, Chinese, Italian, mm. and so forth. I'll speak more to the English language things. Um, there's there's been a lot of uh, video content produced by bilingual um, speakers in Pyongyang, putting together um, and sharing kind of tourist esque tour tourism esque like videos. Um, there's various Twitter accounts. I, mean, I think it's hard to verify who's actually you know which ones are actually pumped out by the North Korean regime, but especially the video content is becoming um, a lot more creative, right. um, much more uh, trying to speak to or trying to kind of harp on this this uh, notion that North Korea is a normal country. It's just you know just it's another Asian country. People eat, live, you know, work out, date, flirt. Trying to present this. Um, image of this country to, I think, promote and kind of gloss over a lot of the um, the, the more challenging realities of the, of the regime. Yeah, this, we have the YouTube channel uh, Echo of Truth. I think it used to be uh, exactly. uh, called something else. Uh, mm-hmm. And we have the videos of Una and Friends uh, on that channel, which are definitely produced inside North Korea and with the, uh, the cooperation of the North Korean state. You mentioned Twitter. Uh, do you think there are any uh, Twitter accounts directly run by the North Korean government? Yeah, there's there's another one called uh, New DPRK, which is which is also that's a YouTube channel, um, and and they have some companion Twitter channels. Um, I, I just actually wrote about some of these earlier this week, and one of the most interesting things is uh, actually not the stuff they're putting out in English, but they've started um, doing stuff for their Chinese audience. Oh. And uh, we yeah we looked at the uh, the new DPRK um, uh, channel um, twelve thousand subscribers on YouTube but on uh, China's Weibo uh, more than half a million goodness wow and uh, sixty five thousand followers on Bilibili which is a Chinese video sharing site hmm. so um, and they're getting ten times as many views on their Chinese content and they started off with. Um, for the stuff they were putting out in China, doing things like subtitling the Un'ar videos. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Now what they've started doing is doing Chinese versions of them because ah. I think they're getting way more traction in mm. China. And, you know, I guess it makes more sense as well. You know, China's, China's their neighbor and they want to keep a good image in China. So um, it's, it's interesting, though, how this, this is sort of evolving. Um, the other really, or what I thought was really interesting thing was on the Echo of Truth channel. Mm. Um, I, I started looking at this in early June. I took a screenshot of the channel and um, didn't got busy, didn't get around to finishing the story till last week. Um, just by chance, uh, because I'd taken that earlier screenshot, I was able to look at the current channel. They were mixing in all of these modern, you know, let's go to the burger restaurant, let's go to the zoo, those types of videos. They were mixing them in with the um, with the century, reminiscences of Kim Il-sung, which, yeah. you know, to North Koreans is... Incredibly important content, but to foreigners is mm. just you know forget it. They've they've taken all of those videos down off that channel. Have they? Hmm. Yes, and that I thought for a, for North Korean propaganda to to de-emphasize Kim Il Sung is one of the biggest changes in their external propaganda I've seen in a long time because you know everything they put out is still centered. Around, it's almost like you know you feel like you're getting a, just a translation of the domestic content, even though of course there are some differences. Yeah. Um, and that stuff's still on YouTube on other channels, but they're taking it down off that um, echo of truth. So hmm. there does seem to be this evolution. They are getting a little bit more digital savvy, and it seems to be being run by a couple of small teams in Pyongyang. And uh, I don't know if these channels are run from there or if, if you know they have. Um, uh, folks in China that are putting all this stuff on the web, but mm. um, it's really in, that, that side of things is really interesting. Has the uh, implementation of the information cordon and punishments been constant over time, or do we notice periods when things were either slacker or stricter? It definitely changes um, in terms of uh, just uh, up and down um, with the seasons. Uh, you'll find that North Korea gets more strict on information coming in around large events. For example, mm-hmm. later mm-hmm. this year, around the 75th anniversary of the Workers' Party, I expect there'll be a big security operation. Um, but the It'll other be, thing, uh, I, I, when 10th? I did my... Yeah, October 10th, right. The, the other thing, I, I, when I did my report, we looked at the North Korean criminal code. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it's, it's tempting to think that North Korea doesn't obey the law. And, you know, of course, the judges and the regime in North Korea can do and, and does do whatever it wants. But... There is a criminal code, and uh, you know they, they do seem to be making somewhat of an effort to sometimes stick to it. Um, and uh, I came up with that conclusion because 
over the last three revisions of the criminal code, they've actually changed the penalties for consumption of foreign content and for mm. handling it. The emphasis now is on distribution and on um, what they, they you know, classify as the most severe levels of content. Mm. Um, simply watching foreign content or the lower level stuff like Chinese movies and things, less of a punishment mm. than before but more of a punishment that for distributing it. So I think that's also a admission from the country that it's losing the battle. And, you know, like in other countries with, you know, the war on drugs or something, they were, you know, possession has been de-emphasized um, in terms of dealing and distribution. And that's what's going on with, with information in North Korea now. Okay, I've got the last couple of questions here. This is for both of you. Um, is there a danger that all these projects to bring information into North Korea will have uh, a reverse effect? Um, I mean, without the existence of channels for the recipients to make fundamental societal changes through things like either peaceful protest or lobbying or even full-scale result, what actually can North Korean people do with the information that is smuggled to them, uh, whether it is the entirety of Wikipedia downloaded onto a USB drive or a Korean translation of Herodotus on Athenian democracy? Is there not a risk that people will feel impotent, envious and frustrated, leading to a greater cynicism and inclination to inaction? So there's certainly a possibility of unintended back backfire effects. Um, and this, it, you know, if, if someone is attacking someone's essentially, you know, belief system, and if that belief system is semi-religious in nature, then of course they're going to feel attacked and just really dig into, the, dig their heels down um, further into their beliefs, which is why, you know, we and our, you know, a lot of our colleagues really emphasize the importance of making all information available versus very, you know, versus certain curated um, ideas. So the answer is yes, but the, there's ways around that, which is providing more information. Um, in terms of, you know, what can North Koreans, what can people do? Well, won't they feel frustrated when faced with relative deprivation? They have no tools of civil, civic action and mm. so forth. Yeah, yes, that's absolutely the case um, in North Korea and other repressive societies. But there are many things that individuals who want to create change can do um, far short of collective action. Because like you said, you know, peaceful protest that, that's not feasible in North Korea anytime soon. And Pyongyang Square isn't going to take place anytime soon. But um, individuals can make small changes to just improve their individual lives. Um, you know, trying to turn out a, a slightly bigger profit to better take care of their families or um, learn about how to improve their health and the health of their family. Um, little things that they could, that individuals can do at that, at that micro level unit, um, and that could then, I think, that kind of individual-based change or improvements or kind of dependence on alternative sources of information can over time um, kind of snowball into larger effects. Um, but but it's certainly not the case uh, that, you know, provision of more information will immediately lead to some type of causal macro-level change. That's certainly not the case. But um, even though that's not the case, I think it's, it's so important to just make this – make the world's information available so that people can even have the option to improve their individual lives, um, like in, in the short term? Uh, it was a, a really good question. Um, but I don't think I have anything more to add than, than what Jean said. I know she's been looking at this a lot because this is something that we were, uh, you know, we, we're interested in and um, worried about because, you know, you don't want to don't want to go in with uh, a, a guns blazing. Uh, well, maybe a poor choice of phrase, but you know what I mean, and, and have um, un unintended consequences. So uh, I know Jean's been, been talking to some people that actually studied this. This is an area of study and could probably almost be an entire podcast. But yeah, I mean, everything she said. N knowing the uh, North Korean legal restrictions on um, on consumption of and, and bringing in of outside information, aren't you putting North Korean people at risk by even giving them the opportunity to look at this kind of information that the government doesn't want them to have? Yes. Uh, yes, in a way. But um, I mean, we uh, one of the things that, that we sort of won't do is trick people into it, you know, People, people need to understand up front what they're getting into. They need to make their own decisions. Uh, North Koreans do it every day with USB content. Um, they will uh, sometimes decide to watch something. Sometimes they'll decide not to touch something because they know the content is just too incendiary and the penalties are too high. Um, so it, it's more about um, you know giving them the option rather than, again, telling them you should watch this. It's like, well, you, you, you choose. 
Interestingly, I recently had uh, Pastor Eric Foley from Voice of the Martyrs Korea on the podcast and asked him uh, mm-hmm. a similar question about the sending of Bibles into North Korea. Uh, and his answer was very similar. He said that he uh, wanted uh, uh, not to trick people and, and, but to let them know exactly what it was they were picking up and so that they were, were taking a calculated risk when they chose to look at it. One example I'll share of, peop- of, of, um, of, that, of something we don't want to do mm. is an example that I came across a couple of years ago where, um, and these activists are very proud of doing it, and I understand. But anyway, so they're sending in very innocuous um, children's cartoons, it's like with animal or, co- mm. or animal cartoons. But then the more you watch, or in like other kind of just very innocuous documentaries, and then in the middle of it, they had spliced in very, very um, incendiary anti um, Kim Jong Il, Kim Jong Un material, mm-hmm. and then a couple of minutes later, it'll go back to the children's cartoon or whatever else. Uh, and if that's the content that the viewers wanted, that's fine. But I'm gonna. But then outside, it just it was labeled, you know, children's cartoons right. and documentaries. That's the type of stuff we do not want to engage in. We want to, um, you know, we don't want to manipulate anyone into taking the very high risks of consuming this kind of material. Okay. What is your long-term goal and the goal of Lumen? I would say the goal is to do this work until there's no need for us anymore. Um, we want to be, we want to design ourselves, uh, to, 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 um, basically not be needed, um, in, you know, in the mid to long term. Basically, we're just set out, you know, we're a team of people, um, just all over who are just committed to just providing information access to North Koreans, um, and just using the tools available to us, whether that's research, partnerships, fundraising, technological innovation and development, um, doing open calls for ideas, which we did last year. We're, we're planning to do that on an annual basis. And just trying to just centralize all of this, like the amazing things that exist in our world, in their shared world, um, and just making that available to, to people who are living in the world's most closed society and just give them the tools to make, to decide what they want to do um, in their individual lives and, and the future in their country. And lastly, where would you direct people to go to uh, find out more uh, or get in touch or get involved or support you and your work? Yep. So we have a very basic website. It's called um, lumen.global. It, there's not a lot of information on it by design, but there are ways to contact us for, um, you know, for whatever reason on that website. There's also a donation button there. Mm-hmm. Um but also, I do want to just highlight one thing. There are a lot of groups um, in South Korea currently that are facing all sorts of challenges, and I would, you know, I'd love for the listeners to just you know, check them out as well. There's there's a couple dozen, um, but you know, Unification Media Group is another is a, is a group. North Korea Strategy Center, um, Free North Korea Radio, um, that are all they have English language websites. Um, they're all you know doing very very practical work in this field, and so I'd love the listeners to um, uh, to check them out as well. Excellent, great. Well, thank you very much both for joining me on the podcast today. You've been very generous with your time. Uh, thanks. Martin, thanks, Gian. Thanks, Jacko. Thank you.